As we begin a new school year, we are going to study the book of Titus, and you can see it on the screen. And I've kind of put that tagline, Doctrine and Deeds. There's many ways we can go about looking into this book, and I'll talk about some of them this evening and then next week as well. But that can be this overarching umbrella for you to begin to organize your thoughts and the messages that we'll be uh, doing this semester and next in the book of Titus. How do we organize what Paul is trying to communicate to one of his disciples? And so to start, I'd like to read the whole epistle. It's only three chapters. Don't panic. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. It is kind of small, so you're going to have to get your glasses, even if you never wore glasses until now. Uh, but maybe you can change it up on you. I don't know if you can do it. Split it. Let's go one, four, five, nine, and so on. Um, it's in the LSB version, so that's what I wanted to put on the screen as well, so that you can Listen, you can uh, follow along in this version. Now, as you open up your Bibles and uh, look into this book, Titus belongs in the corpus of Paul's writings that are called the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Titus fits right in between chronologically. First Timothy was written first, then Titus, and then Second Timothy. And they've been called this title, pastoral epistles, since 1703. So, 300 years or so, scholars of the New Testament began to identify these letters as pastoral epistles because if you've read them, how many of you have read all three epistles before entirely? Okay, a good number of you. If you've read them before, you know that there's something different about these three books when you compare it to Romans or Corinthians or any of the other Paul's letters. Thessalonians, for example. These are focused on the person who's leading the church. They're focused on the church. How do you live within the church? How do you operate within the church for preachers? How do you preach and lead the church of God? And so therefore they've been called the pastoral epistles. They were written as the last three books of Paul's life. And so the focus of those books ends up being even defectors and false teachers that are now rising up in the environment of the early Christian church. And Paul is now trying to protect the faithful Christians from these false teachers. So there's an emphasis on false teaching and defending the truth in each of these letters as well. So there are distinctions that are common to each of these letters. But Titus specifically will be our focus for the next number of months. And so you can follow along as I read it for us. Paul a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. But at the proper time manifested his word in preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior to Titus, my genuine child, according to our common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having children, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be slandered. Likewise, urge the younger men to be sensible, In all things, show yourself to be a model of good works, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in word which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, denying ungodliness and worldly desires. We should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things Speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, 
for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help send Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Typically in the first century church, you would have heard scripture, not read scripture. Because paper was expensive, ink was expensive, and so most people didn't own Bibles. And so a typical Sunday experience would be when you would hear scripture. A letter that's personal, like Titus or Timothy, would be slightly different. They were sent directly to those individuals. Nevertheless, the tradition of early Christianity is that letters were circulated throughout the Roman Empire from church to church so that everybody could benefit from the same writing by the apostles. And so what we just did is exactly how the first century church would have experienced scripture. And I hope reading it in one setting setting helps you intake all of it and hear the repetition. I hope you now know why I put doctrine and deeds. Maybe I should have put works, but I tried to alliterate. uh, As our tagline, because multiple times doctrine and works kept reappearing in this letter. And as Paul begins this letter, look at the very, very beginning of this letter. He says, Paul, a slave of God, as the author of this book, the very first thing that Paul wants to remind Titus of. Titus didn't forget this. Titus and Paul have known for about 25 years by the time this book is written. They've traveled all over the Roman Empire. But Paul wants him to remember that my identity lies in myself, understanding that I am a slave of God. That is an identity statement because slaves lacked freedom. They were possessed or they were owned by the owner. And so Paul wants to uh, wants Titus to remember that I belong to God. Now, this is the only place in all of Paul's writings where he says, I'm a slave of God. He typically says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. So the question is, why would he do that? Why change from Christ to God? Well, if you kept looking at the next three verses, all the way down to verse four, you'll see that God appears five times in total. So what's most likely is happening here from a literary perspective, is Paul is trying to attach himself to God. The same God who in verse 2 doesn't lie. You see that? God who cannot lie. The same God who back in verse 1 says, for the faith of God's elect. God is the one who chose people. In verse 3, it's the commandment of God that he wants to attach himself to and say, I'm here to fulfill the command of God. And then at the end of verse 4, God, who is the father of Jesus Christ. So in order to have a consistency in our understanding of God's role and Paul's connection to this God, it changes his typical phrase to, I'm a slave of God. He also, by using this terminology, aligns himself with the Old Testament phrase, the servant of Yahweh or the slave of Yahweh. Moses, Joshua, Amos, Jeremiah all speak about the servant or servants of Yahweh. Not talking necessarily about the Messiah who is the servant of Yahweh and Isaiah. 
But those individuals were called by God as my servant, my slave. And so in taking the same phrase, Paul says, I belong in this line of individuals who preceded me. I fall in line with all those faithful prophets and faithful servants of the Lord who fulfilled the word of God and communicated the word of God. And so Paul aligns himself with God, but he also says my authority comes from God because in the ancient world, depending on whose slave you were, you could have more influence because you were attached to the emperor versus Cicero versus a senator or an attorney or a medical professional. So the hierarchy actually mattered for the status of the slave as well. In fact, some slaves ran the entire empire of some powerful and wealthy individuals. There are individuals who had over 4,000 slaves in the ancient world. Cicero writes about those individuals, and they were basically employees. They weren't necessarily beaten every single day and abused and treated like trash, but they were actually treated as employees. That's the common way we need to understand slavery, the terminology and the idea in the Roman Empire. Very different than the slavery that we typically think of when we think about slavery in the modern age. So Paul says, the very first thing that I want to make sure Titus remembers is that my identity lies in me being a slave of God. But then he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he focuses on being commissioned by Jesus Christ to fulfill a specific task. The very first letter that Paul wrote was Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, this is what Paul says. Paul, an apostle, not sent from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So now Paul defines this understanding of apostleship. My apostleship didn't originate from man or through man. In other words, my authority doesn't come from any human being. It comes directly from God or Jesus Christ in Titus chapter 1. And you've heard me say this before, Paul picks up a, lang- a vocabulary that was used to describe a cargo ship in the ancient world that would move cargo from port to port, from city to city in the Roman Empire in order to deliver that cargo. And the responsibility of that captain and the workers on that cargo ship was to faithfully take that cargo, whatever they got paid for, and deliver it without messing with it, not lose it, not modify it, not steal some of it, but to faithfully move it from port to port. Paul, we know in his understanding of his history and his ministry, picked port cities where he planted churches. And so in that sense, even that strategy, his philosophy of ministry aligns with the vocabulary that he uses because he views himself as the cargo of the gospel who's commissioned by Jesus Christ directly to move that truth from place to place. But Paul needed help. Enter Titus. And so he says in verse 4, To Titus, my genuine child, according to our common faith. Titus is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 2, 7, 8, 12, Galatians 2, and in this passage. He is uniquely omitted from the book of Acts. And we'll talk about that in just a second. He has a Greek name. Titus, a famous name, one of the most famous Roman emperors who was a general before he became an emperor was Titus. He actually was the one who defeated the Jews in the Jewish war between 66 and 74 AD, first century. 
And so that made him famous, and he was a Roman emperor. Titus has the same exact name. It's a Greek name, which means that he is a true, full Gentile. There's no Jewish background to him whatsoever. We know this even more particularly because of Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, which takes place probably in late 40s, AD 40s, Paul says in verse 1, After 14 years, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, and I went up because of a revelation. And I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow I may be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. What's happening in Galatians chapter 2 is a debate between the apostles. If a Gentile becomes a Christian, do we need to force them to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law because they're entering the Judeo-Christian religion? Now, for our, from our perspective, that was 2,000 years ago, there is no Judeo-Christian religion, right? There's a separation. There's Judaism and there's Christianity. But all the first Christians were Jews. And they struggled in understanding how do we relate to the Old Testament, to all of the commandments, to the Ten Commandments, and all of the other ones in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus. And so as the church began to grow, about 20 years after Jesus' ascension, these debates begin to surface. And so Galatians 2 is this debate. And so Paul, representing, let's just say, Gentile Christianity, he says, I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter's an apostle to the Jews. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, my primary focus is the Gentile mission. And so he says, we should not be forcing them to be circumcised. We're not making them converts to Judaism. We're making them converts to Christ. And Christ doesn't demand circumcision. So he says, I'm going to bring an exhibit with me. Exhibit A is Titus. And so he takes Barnabas, who's a Jew, and brings Titus with him in order to demonstrate to these other apostles why what some of them are trying to force the new converts to do is wrong. And so there's a discussion. You can read the rest of Galatians 2. You can read Acts 15 as well. Different time, similar debate that takes place in early Christianity. But what we see happening here is by the time Titus is written, by the time Galatians 2 happens, Paul and Titus have known each other since probably uh, for about eight years. I'm sorry, since AD 43. So about 20 years by the time this book is written. Okay, 20, 25 years or so as he gets into the end of his life. So 20 years by the time Titus is written, 25 years by the time Paul dies and Titus continues to do ministry. And what you realize about Titus is that Titus was saved in the city called Antioch, in Syria. Now, if you look at Acts 11, that's a very important city in early Christianity because the very first Christ followers were called Christians for the very first time in Antioch. So as their testimony spread in the city of Antioch, their enemies, the neighbors who were listening to them talk about Christ, began to call them, oh, they're little Christians. They're Christians. They are followers of Christ. It was a derogatory term initially. We adopt it positively now. But initially it was a derogatory term against these Christians. Titus would have been one of those individuals in Antioch saved under the ministry of Paul who was ministering with Barnabas. It was also from Antioch that the very first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, were sent on their first missionary journey. 
Now, why is Titus omitted from the book of Acts? Acts 11 is what we're talking about. There's a lot of chapters after Acts 11. And Titus appears nowhere in those chapters. Probably the most reasonable hypothesis is because Luke wrote Acts. And many scholars believe Luke and Titus are brothers. And because Luke didn't want to be the center of that story, oftentimes you'll read, we entered the ship. We went from this city to another city. The we is Luke, including himself, in the group who's traveling with Paul. He doesn't name himself. And so in order to not have any spotlight on himself or his family member, Titus, he never mentions him. Even though historically we have to put him into some of the stories in the book of Acts. So that's probably the best explanation of why he's not in the book of Acts. But you have to know this, that Galatians 2 takes place in the year 49. He gets saved in the year 43. So about six years as a believer. Paul has been ministering since the year 35. So about 15 years of ministry. In 15 years of ministry, there are dozens of Christians saved through Paul. There are churches planted all over the empire. The first missionary journey has happened. The second missionary journey has happened. By the time Galatians 2 happens. And Paul brings two people. Barnabas, his very first Christian friend. Find that out in Acts 9. The first person who believed that Paul truly became a Christian. And he brought him into the Christian church. And he vouched for him with the apostles when it says everybody was afraid of him. And so that's his first mentor, his first Christian friend. So, of course, you honor him by taking him on a trip with you to Jerusalem to appear before all of the other apostles and defend the gospel by grace through faith, not by circumcision. And then he chooses Titus and nobody else. So now you have to stop and think, what is so important and valuable about Titus that Paul would pick him above hundreds of other converts from all these different churches to take him as a, let's call it specimen or exhibit A, to show this is a Gentile convert. This is what he looks like, and this is why we should not be forcing them to be circumcised. And we'll find out that Titus was unique as we look into his ministry story. You see, Paul and Titus' story begins as their ministry converges in Corinth. How many of you have read the book, 1 Corinthians? Awesome. Now, when you read that book, do you walk away thinking, I want Grace Church to be just like the church in Corinth? (laughs) Right? I'm glad. I hope everybody says never. And I'll have a list in a minute to remind you why. The right answer is never. So Paul, if you look at 1 Corinthians 16, says, I'm going to send you Timothy. Because in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul is responding to a letter that they sent to him, Corinthians, with questions. In that story are massive accusations against Paul. Massive accusations against him. Immorality. He's selling the gospel for gain. He's not as good as the super apostles because they preceded him. And so there's accusation against accusation. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going to send you Timothy. Timothy is described in 1 Corinthians 16 as timid. And so he says, please don't take advantage of him. Please don't abuse him when he comes to you. For whatever reason, Timothy never shows up to Corinth. 
Then it says, okay, I've actually encouraged Apollos. This is on 1 Corinthians 16. I've asked Apollos, I've encouraged him to come and visit you. And he didn't want to. He didn't want to go to, first, to, Corinth, to Corinth because of the problems in that church. It says that. He didn't want to go to you. So Paul ends up sending Titus to deliver the message of 1 Corinthians. Remember, 1 Corinthians is the response to another letter. And so, yes, he was third in line. That's fine. If you know Apollos, you know why Apollos would have been selected. Acts 18, mighty in scriptures, fantastic preacher, knew his Old Testament really well. So he could have dealt with the issues. Timothy, we know from the first, for first and second book of Timothy that he was also extremely effective. But ultimately, Titus gets sent on this mission. And so what happens is in 2 Corinthians, this is now Titus has gone to the Corinthians. And Paul is trying to meet with him. Let me correct myself. Paul is sending him on this mission. But before he gets there, he wants to meet with him. Okay, And so he wants to meet with him in order to probably prepare him for whatever he's about to experience. And so if you look at 2 Corinthians and you look at chapter 2, he was supposed to meet with Titus at Troas, verse 12 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, 12. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. I was restless, not finding Titus my brother. But saying farewell to them, I went to Macedonia. So Paul wanted to meet with Titus at Troas before Titus would make his way to Corinth. Because they missed each other somehow. Troas was a port. He would have had to go to Troas in order to get to Corinth. Paul was going to go to Troas to meet him and then do his other journey, Macedonia being next. And he thought I could find him in Troas. They missed each other. We don't know exactly what happened. But you can see Paul's heart. It's restless. So restless that he says in verse 12, a door was wide open for me in the Lord. There was a ton of ministry I could have done at Troas. But because I was so discouraged and distraught for not meeting Titus, I decided to leave. So now you get a glimpse into the relationship between Paul and Titus. It's a relationship built on trust and certainly affection. Now, if you look at chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 17, it says this. Well, verse 16, Titus is introduced again. For he not only accepted our plea, but being himself very earnest, he had gone out to you out of his own accord. So now he's going back to Corinth on his own volition because he's so earnest in trying to fulfill the mission that he was asked to do. The mission being they are collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem that is going through severe poverty. And so Paul is collecting money from Rome, from the Macedonians and Philippi, and now he wants Corinth to help as well. But here's what you need to pay attention to. Go back to chapter 7 for just a second. In chapter 7, verse 5. If you've ever done any counseling and somebody is really discouraged, 
you typically take them to 2 Corinthians 7. And you basically say the God of all comfort who comforts everybody is going to comfort you as well. Okay? But it's also a passage on true, genuine repentance. And so look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 7. Even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears, with, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the humbled, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So now the way Paul is finding comfort is because of the appearance of Titus in his life. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, the desire to see Paul, your mourning over the sin of 1 Corinthians, your zeal for me, again, a desire to see Paul, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, 1 Corinthians, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. So now what's happening here is this. Titus successfully entered Corinth, delivered the letter, and explained to them the issues that Paul wanted him to deal with. All the accusations that were making against them. And he successfully was able to shepherd the whole church in Corinth, such that 2 Corinthians 7 says they repented. Now they now wanted to see Paul. They had a zeal for Paul and they were comforted. Titus was comforted with their response. And Paul is now being comforted, not only because he saw Titus and heard about the resolution that happened, but also because of their genuine repentance. I hope you can pause and reflect on this friendship between Paul and Titus and say, do I find as much joy in my Christian relationships? Do I long to see Christians that I minister with on Fridays, on Sundays, on Wednesdays? Do I really long to spend time with other believers because they comfort me and encourage me? Or is this another thing to do because it's religious, because it makes me feel good about myself, because it's church, and so I have to do it. You see, Paul and Titus, Paul was sad. He said, I'm not even going to do any more ministry in Troas. I'm leaving because I can't find Titus. And then the flip side in chapter 7, I'm so encouraged because of Titus and because of your repentance. I think there's a lesson here in relationships that we need to invest into our relationships and find joy in co-laboring with one another in the gospel. After 2 Corinthians was written, just a couple years later, Paul is imprisoned in Caesarea for two years and then in Rome for two years. And that takes us to the ending of the book of Acts. Paul writes the books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon in that time period in Rome in those two years. And it takes us to about the year 62 AD, about a year before Titus is written. And so now Paul has just been released from prison, the end of Acts 28, and he decides to do more ministry. And he'll have another five or six years of ministry before he's executed. Now, the question is, after 25 years of ministry, what is Paul going to do next? By this point, he's covered most of the Eastern Roman Empire. And he's always had his eyes set on the far west, which is Spain in that time period. And so in Romans 15, for example, he says, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Wherever, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope passing through to see you, the Romans, 
and to be helped on my way there by you. So Romans 15 ends in a way where Paul says, I really want to get to Spain. Romans 15 happens before Acts 28 imprisonment. And so now that he's out of prison, he says, I'm going back to my mission. I got to get to Spain. We know from early church history that Paul did get to Spain and fulfilled his mission. Now, in between Acts 28 and Spain, Paul ends up in what's called the area of the Lycus Valley. There should be a map of that in front of you. That's the region. And you can see all those stars. Those are the churches, Revelations 2 and 3. So Paul is released from the Roman prison about the year 62. And then he makes his way to Turkey, Asia Minor, right over there, and ends up starting those churches that ultimately end up mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. That would have taken some time to do that. And so if you look at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, there are multiple times where Paul leaves one city and goes to another city, leaves one of his associates, Titus, Tychicus, Timothy, says, okay, you got to take care of some business here while I'm going to go over there. Because Paul is really committed to making his final stop being Spain. Well, after he does get to Spain, he goes back to Greece. And most likely he's rearrested by the year 67 and imprisoned by Nero and then ultimately executed about the same time as Peter. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, that's his, those are his final words. He says in verse 10, Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me and went to Thessalonica. Crescens went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. You could interpret that and say all three abandoned him. But you have to be careful because he says, Demas, the reason he left me is because he loved this present age. Whereas Crescens, he went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. There's no reason given why they went to those places. So we have to assume that they went there to do ministry. That's the best way to understand the language that's written here in the original. And then you have to pause and say this. So if you knew, if Paul knew and Titus knew that this is the end of Paul's life, he'd be executed within a couple of months. Wouldn't you want to spend time with your mentor? With the man who brought you to the Lord? Say, Paul, don't send me to Dalmatia. I don't want to go there. I want to spend time with you. Luke gets to stay. Why can't I stay? Why does my older brother get to stay? Send him. But you also have to understand, the mission to advance the gospel was more important. And so Titus understood, I may never see Paul again, but I'm going to take the gospel where I believe it needs to be taken and where Paul, my mentor, is sending me. As you look at the life of Titus, he wasn't an author. He didn't write a single letter. It never says that he was a powerful preacher. It never says that he was mighty in scriptures. It never gives them this clout of influence over a region. Even like Timothy gets and others. Priscilla and Aquila, the church planting couple. There are other people in the New Testament who get a lot more publicity as being famous and influential. Titus gets mentioned here briefly, here briefly, here briefly, and that's it. But when you look at the missions that Paul sent Titus on, they were the most difficult. Who wants to go to Corinth? 
chapter 1 tells us that they are fighting with each other. Paul barely says hello to them in chapter 1. And immediately, you guys are fighting. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Christ. I'm the best of y'all. And she says, stop it. Who am I? I didn't even baptize any of you except, well, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. But the rest of you, I didn't baptize. Paul's memory was failing, I think. But chapter 1, there's factions. You move forward and they're self-promoting themselves through the use of spiritual gifts. Just imagine somebody bumping MacArthur on Sunday morning and pushing himself into the pulpit because he also has a spiritual gift of preaching. And they're doing this with new revelation, with prophecy, with tongues. This was happening in the church. Paul said, I got to give you guys rules. 1 Corinthians 14. It's all about rules. Okay. One person, then the next person gets to prophesy. And at most, three people per service. And if you're doing this in a foreign language, okay, make sure you brought a translator with you. Because then somebody walks in and says, these are crazies. That's the word he uses. A bunch of not, not it's, the word is madmen. Crazy people in church. That's what the pagans will call you. Who are even more crazy if you actually understand pagan religion in the first century. But that's what they were doing. They were suing each other in chapter 6. They were forbidding divorce. And others were divorcing. They were prohibiting marriage. Others were marrying unbelievers. They were engaging in sexual immorality. They were enslaved to massive addictions in chapter 10. They refused to practice church discipline on a man who was sleeping with his stepmom in chapter 5. They were abusing the Christian liberties. They weren't following gender roles such that Paul says in chapter 16 verse 13, act like men. Some of them refused, the rich refused to have the Lord's Supper with the poor. Others were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and God killed them for it. Chapter 11. Others were rejecting the resurrection in chapter 15. This is Corinth. I don't think we'd get 233 people join our church last Sunday if that was Grace Church. And Paul sends Titus to fix it. And in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, it says he fixed it. And there were four letters written. That's the best reconstruction of the information we have between Corinthians and Paul. We only have two of them. But we know that they reconciled and all things went well. So now, Paul found a new mission for him. And the new mission being Crete. And you heard me read. Let me remind you a couple of things. Verse 12. Even their own prophet says this about the Cretans. They're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 10. They are rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced because they are upsetting entire families. They're doing all this for dishonest gain. Verse 11. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good work. And what does Paul tell him to do in verse 5? Right after the little introduction, he says this. This is why I left you at Crete. Set things in order. And appoint elders in every church. So while Titus isn't an author, isn't a popular preacher, he's a man who sent on the most difficult missions by Paul and he got things done. 
And he did this, according to the New Testament, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Crete, and in Rome. And all those cities should ring a bell. Important cities in the early church. And the friendship between Paul and Titus lasted for 25 years before Paul dies. And as Paul describes him in various passages, he says he is his true child, his brother, his fellow worker, his partner in the Lord the one who comforts me, the one who's earnest for ministry, the one who's a man of integrity. Because when Paul sends him for the third time to Corinth to collect the money and to take it to Jerusalem, he attaches him to two other men, both apostles. They're not named. You can speculate all day long. I looked at a bunch of commentaries today trying to figure out who are they, these unnamed men. And some say maybe Tychicus, but they don't give you a reason why they think it's Tychicus. Because nobody knows who they are. All we know is that they're both apostles. 2 Corinthians 8. It's like traveling with MacArthur and Chris Hamilton on a journey. You get these two individuals who are influential. And you, Titus, young guy. Yeah, you get sent here and here. But you get attached to two apostles. And your job is to go to Rome and collect money. To go to Philippi and collect money with these guys to go to Corinth and collect money and then take it to Jerusalem. He was trusted. It's not, he didn't put two men for accountability necessarily because he thought Titus would steal. It's because the Corinthians had already accused Paul of doing the gospel work for dishonest gain. He didn't want that same reputation to be attached to Titus. And so he says, he's a man of integrity, but for the sake of accountability, I'm going to put two apostles with him to be the journeyman with him. This is Titus, who is described as follows. A man of force, who knew how to drive things through. A lieutenant, a man to be counted on in a time of emergency. And so now there's an emergency in Crete. Multiple churches have started and there's chaos. And Paul says, Titus, fix it. And so for the next few months, we're going to look at what Titus did and had to do. And the commands that Paul gives is an insight to what was happening in the church and what Paul expected the church to be like on Crete. Lord God, we thank you for Titus. We thank you for this book that Paul wrote shortly before his own death. That we get to understand what the true Christian life looks like that it is based on our doctrine that is demonstrated through our deeds. It's not just about what we believe. It's how we live. It's when that truth makes its way into our lives. And people look and when they hear us confess that Jesus Christ is our Savior, saving us from hell and from judgment and from sin. He's the only Savior. When we say those truths, Our lives support it. And so as we look into the book of Titus, I ask that all of us would be willing to truly evaluate ourselves against this model that Paul sets up in Titus and for Titus. What does a young man look like? What does an older man look like? What does a young woman look like in the church? What does an older woman look like? How do you operate in an employment environment? How do you operate in a family How do you operate as a pastor, as a deacon, as an elder? 
Lord God, teach us lessons that are appropriate for our place in life and change us because of the book that Paul wrote to his disciple, Titus. Amen.